Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. And I hope you all managed to have a fantastic Christmas despite all the changes. But the best present of all is that we're back with another series of the Nature Friendly Farming Network podcast. I'm Ben Eagle. And I'm Will Evans, the other half of the digitally dynamic duo, as absolutely no one refers to us as. And uh, and today, Ben, we're interviewing the big boss, the man who actually employs us to present these podcasts. Are you nervous? I'm uh, nervous doesn't even go there, Will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose we'd better introduce him before we get fired. Uh, Welcome to the show, farmer and founder of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, Martin Lines. Hello and Happy New Year to you both. Yeah, Happy Happy New New Year Year to you too. Did you have a a very nice nature-friendly Christmas, Martin? (laughs) Yeah, and enjoy my walks around the farm uh, because we couldn't go anywhere else because we're like everywhere else, locked down. So enjoy the nature around us. Very good. Perfect. Uh, Martin, we've spoken to several different nature-friendly farmers for the podcast now, and we're very excitingly we're going to be talking mostly about climate um, in this series. Um, and I know that later on in this episode, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, about your, your thoughts on where we're going this year. Um, but uh, we thought that it was about time we spoke to you generally Um, to find out a bit more about the man behind Nature Friendly Farming Network. Um, So you're in Cambridgeshire. Tell us a bit about the area that you farm in for people who might not be familiar with it. Um, I know Will gets a nosebleed if he ventures too far west of the Welsh marches. So (laughs) tell us what it's like there and what's going on in farming terms. So we farm about 15 miles outside of Cambridge City. Um, It's fairly built up areas, parts of Cambridgeshire are. Um, we're on the heavy clay ground. You've got the Fenland out to the uh, northeast and the chalk ground to the southwest. And to Cambridgeshire, we're in a, you know, a fairly tree area. There's you know, a bit of woodland around, a few hedges still about. Uh, and so we're an arable farm in, in the centre, or uh, separated between two villages. Yeah. Let's talk about the farm itself. Um, what do you do there now? And perhaps, perhaps tell us how it's changed over the years that you've been involved. So... Uh, nowadays, it's a, oh, mainly an arable farm, uh, growing combined crops of uh, wheat, barley, or seed, rape, beans. Uh, we were a mixed farm. Um, we're heading back that direction. When my grandfather was here, uh, pre, just pre-Second World War, uh, lots of hedges and trees around. Uh, post-war uh, policy encouraged my father and grandfather to remove much of the hedgerows and uh, fill in lots of ditches, and they got very efficient at it. Um <laughs> And instead of the last probably 20 years, we've been putting much of that fabric back in, but where it fits in a, you know, our farming system. And we've sort of gone from a focus of increasing production and farming to the very edge of every field to softening a lot of the edges off, putting a lot of habitat back in. And this journey to, for me, is about how we manage and work our landscape to be really productive, not just the crops we grow, but everything else we have on our farm. Yep. Mm. And were you always someone who was interested in nature and the environment? I mean, even as a as a kid growing up, or is it something that's happened later in life? I, I think it's been a huge journey. So I've always, in, when I was young, always played outside, you know, played on the farm, worked on the farm wherever possible. Just loved being in the countryside. Mm. Uh, through school, uh, through college, university, farm, you know, went to a farming college, all those about production and you know increasing crop production increase animal welfare and then sort of when i come back into the business uh noticed a lot of the stuff my father used to talk about you know the gray partridge and the hares and this you didn't see many 
And actually, we've gone down a journey of persuading him to go into some habitat schemes and putting stuff back into the landscape. And the more I've understood it, the more I've enjoyed it, and the more I've engaged with conservationists who give me the knowledge that I've never had. I've got a farm worker who's, he knows all the different birds. He knows all the, he's, you know, he's an old, old chap, but it, that depth of knowledge, I don't think I have. And I'm still trying to learn it. Yeah, some of the story here. I mean, how how uh, easy has it been to make those changes to the farm? Because it, I think many of us uh, are doing this sort of thing now, whether that's because um, we want to or due to policy changes and increased focus on the environment generally. But when you first started to think this way and implement those measures on your farm, uh, when it was perhaps more uncommon, how did it go down with those around you? Uh I, th- I think the biggest thing is persuading my father. Uh, we we're in a partnership. My father held the checkbook until the day he passed away. So, we, you know, as many family farms are, it's that relationship. Yeah. The original journey started with countryside stewardship about uh, putting hedgerows back in. We couldn't spray next to white water courses. So why are we trying to farm those areas we couldn't legally crop with products? So let's put a buffer zone in. We had the shaded side of a wood. Let's take that out of production because there's always when we come to harvest, that green bit of wheat that was never ready. Um, and it was about fitting them in. And also we put a huge amount of hedgerow back in. And I sold it to my father that we had all these problems with hair courses and with fly tippers. And if we put the hedge around the outside, they couldn't come back in the field. Yeah. And, you know, if we needed to move some of it in at some point down the line, we could. And as we started to doing it, he accepted some of it. He didn't like me not cutting hedgerows. Um, and we let them grow quite big and bushy and cut them every two or three years. And then we went into the next scheme where we actually, um, what isn't, or it was still in, an ELS, an entry level and a higher level stewardship. And I wanted to square fields off because I recognised we had many parts of the fields were less productive because of awkward shapes. We had big modern farming machinery and these awkward corners and fire mm. squeeze around poles were not good. When we sat down and drew it out, it was very simple around the kitchen table. Yeah, he sort of got the idea, grumbled that I was taking, you know, we took 12% of the farm out of production. But it wasn't until the harvest come and we actually, we'd already signed the agreement and put the lines in the field and particularly come up the farm drive, I took a big chunk of corner out. Um, he was not happy at all. Um, <laughs> because his mindset was still, we've got a farm mill. Yeah. But actually, once we start putting it in place and I showed the pounds and pence of why we're doing it. Yeah. He doesn't always get it, but he got it, but he did understand it. He struggled because it looked scruffier than he was used to. Mm. When we were like many farms, soon harvest was over. Everything got topped. Yeah. You know, all yeah. the banks, all the hedges. And I could do all that now in the winter. All my estate maintenance is all done in the winter around my grass margins. So it's just different. Mm. And I think a lot of my neighbours, some saw it was good. You know, it's very interesting seeing the hedgerows now. Some think, probably think I'm pretty bonkers or were bonkers. Uh, because why aren't you farming all of it? Why are you doing, you've got all this scruffy area. And for mm. me, every time I get a mower out, that costs me money. So why do I need to? But the more I've understood how nature works, the more I need to make homes for predatory insects and habitat for birds, bugs, bees for the whole life cycle. And they're, they're like free gifts back into the farm because they eat my pests and they do other things. And I think some, some of my local neighbours probably think, particularly now where we are with this, we're direct drilling, cover crops, keeping the soil covered all the time. The farm looks very different to many of my near neighbours, but 
but I've had many other neighbours a bit further away who are doing similar. Okay. So I get support and, you know, uh, we work together yeah. and sort of, so I'm in a, in a peer group with like-minded people, just with some doubters around the outside. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about attitudes generally in the farming community when it comes to nature? Are the people who were once very sceptical now changing their minds? Um, is that something that you've encountered? I, I think I always see farmers in the three in like the three groups. You have a group that's doing amazing stuff. You have a group in the middle that do do it and understand it, but need the policy in bits. And there's a lump on the side that is purely focused on business and production and farm the edge. They see themselves as only food producers. Hmm. When we recognise what we do, we're producing far more than food. And lots of the food that I call commodity I grow that isn't really food. It, doesn't go to feed people it's feeding animals or digesters or other things so i think that mindset is changing and particularly how policy is going and particularly future policy uh, the support and the what public want from our landscape isn't just commodity production they want a beautiful landscape and this year really has seen that change because people care for nature and they actually want they can't go on holidays traveling the world they've come to the countryside and we're the ones that can deliver that experience uh, and how that role changes and the expectations for farmers. And I think some farmers need more support to change their mindset, but many are really starting to get the idea of they manage a lovely bit of landscape and public want produce, but also the landscape. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think there are um, quite a lot of farmers who are nervous about the changes ahead. Um, as we know, direct payments are going and we're changing to more environment-based um, payment schemes. You know, they're nervous for lots of reasons, but it's a fact that, as you've said, many have been solely food producers for decades. That's what the system has required and that's what they've done and produce as much food as they can as efficiently as possible. So what do you say to those farmers who are nervous and are worried about how the changes are going to affect their bottom line? Uh, so... We've known the changes are coming for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, There's always been this pressure of BPS payments. Will it continue, whether we're in Europe or out of Europe? And actually, that's, can society just pay farmers for being farmers, or do they need to, uh, to pay or support the delivery of something? It, in the past, it was attached to the food you know, production. It hasn't been for a long time. So we really got to look at our businesses and whatever piece of farmland you farm, wherever in the UK or in the world, you have to look at its natural production level. And actually, if you go beyond that, you destroy your natural asset of your soil and your landscape. So our businesses have got to become more focused about what we can produce at the best economic return. And then ask, you know, get support if we can for managing the landscape, which is one of my core costs. But I need honest pricing of food. So that marketplace for the produce, you know, the true cost of that produce is delivered. And the farmers, you know, it's going to be a really challenging time the next few years while we transition and change policy over. And for all farmers, it's look at what you can do and what's available now and what may be available and plot your journey for the next five to 10 years because the farming policy is only going to be one part of this journey. There's going to be many other influences and climate is going to be a big one. So we just need to look at our businesses of what we can do and keep it on a, you know, a fairly even keel and look for opportunities in the future. Mm. 
before we talk about the network generally, I just want to talk about this series. You mentioned climate there. Um, why, why, Martin, are we focusing on climate in this series? Because I th- you know, farmers can deliver climate solutions. They can, we've got two major emergencies in, in, on the globe at the moment, and we have had for a long time now, is our nature and climate emergencies. Farmers can tackle both of those together uh, and, and do nature-based solutions that benefit our businesses benefit our environment and benefit food production. Um, so uh, there are many farmers who are already doing many great things and we need to demonstrate to other farmers what can be done and what other farmers are doing. And it's not about you must do this. Here's some different opportunities. Let's hear the voices of the farmers who have done diff- or are doing different things. And how can those nature-based solutions work on your farm to deliver you a better return uh, and tackle our emergencies? Because we've all seen the last few years I mean, particularly for me, the last two years have been so wet in the autumn. Last year, we struggled and we got some drilled most in the spring. This year, I packed up drilling two months ago because we're just destroying our soil. And actually, I'm so focused on improving soil quality and benefits to carry on planting to destroy it. So we are being affected by our climate and we need to find solutions that we can have a harvest so we can have a business and we need to feed people. So... If we keep destroying our environment, we're not going to feed society. And food production and food security will only come from healthy soils and a healthy environment. So as farmers, through this series we're about to run, can talk about the solutions they deliver. And we can connect that with the public and talk about how changes are happening and cost of productions will change. Food prices and quality. And we're only going to change many of the problems we have with farming and society when we connect people with the food and the landscape it comes from. And I think we need to really engage with the public to help to understand where their food comes from. And we have huge opportunities in doing that. And that's what will help us as businesses tackle the emergencies we have. Yeah. And I'm guessing that engage and inspire thing for the public, but also for farmers themselves. I'm, I'm guessing that was at least part of your thinking behind founding NWFN, helping farmers to adapt and change to a more nature-friendly way of farming. I mean, how did it initially come about after you, after you had the idea? So, so like myself and many other farmers, we've been doing stewardship schemes. We've been seen as by conservationists as farmers who are doing nice things. We've got good, good bird numbers taken to events, you know, as, as a farmer who's, as a case study, as, as a someone to stand up in front of the room to sort of say what good is, while most reports say what the bad is all about. I was at a State of Nature report in London, there must be six years ago, plus more than that now, um, and usual thing, there's a few farmers there, how good they are, talk about what we can do, and then all the news report within the story was how farming is declining bird life. How it's all that we heard is what farmers are doing wrong, not what some are doing better. So at the end of the meeting, we stood at the farmers stood at the bar, um, had an anatta, sort of talking about how, what the meeting met ha- happened and what we thought. And we all said, "Well, where's our voice?" You know, we hear lots of voices of farming groups, uh, lots of conservationists. Where's what's doing well? So we challenged some of the conservation groups and said, look, if you want to show what's good is, support farmers doing, show them what society and other farmers, what good looks like. So they, you know, we gave them a bit of a challenge. So they went off and some went and did an independent research with farmers across the UK. And actually one of the things came back was 
farmers felt they didn't have a voice across the UK championing nature and conservation farming. There was good, lots of groups in different parts of the UK, but not one thing. But also we need to champion it to policymakers and to public. So in spring, I'm trying to think of the dates back now, spring 17, I was asked, would I like to sort of get some people together, um, which we did, uh, recognised that there was an opportunity. We started thinking about how what we do. And then Brexit ha vote happened and actually recognising policies coming back to the UK, we've got to seize this moment. So in 2017, in November, we brought some farmers together from across the UK and they all wanted to say, yes, we wanted to get behind this. We launched at the Oxford Wheel Farming Conference in 2018. And within that small, short time frame of getting things together, the actual you know, policy was shifting. And actually, to give farmers a voice to other farmers to demonstrate what happens, having that voice within policy circles to actually shift, to actually have good, honest farming that's rooted in managing the landscape well. But also the important thing is to talk to our customers. We use their taxpayers' money to help support farming, but also they're buying our, our food, our, our goods. And unless we can explain it to them, so that's why we set it up. It, it was free to join for farmers, members of the public, and organisations, and it has grown so rapidly. But we also recognised suddenly, once we got going, it can't be a UK network, because me as an English farmer going up to Scotland and talk to the Scottish MPs, it doesn't go down very well because they say I'm English, I'm not from Scotland. Even if I was in, in Scotland with an English accent, that's fine. But because that's the other side of the border, and the same happened in Northern Ireland and other places. Yeah. And we split up and we have a steering group in England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland of all the farmers so they can engage with policy and talk of the language of their farming mm. systems. And then we have a, a group, you know, UK board. Uh, and I've, I've, so far, it's been a very, very busy couple of years, but it's been becoming very effective in trying to put that positive story and demonstrate what we can do. But what are the challenges as well? What do we need fixing to make this really work? Yeah, I mean, I remember being there at your launch at Oxford Reel a couple of years ago, and it is honestly, it's incredible um, quite how far the network has moved. But looking forward, what are your ambitions for the network? Where would you like it to be in five, say, 10 years time? Uh, lots of huge opportunity going forward. I think what, well, what we're hoping to do, we've actually just doing a restructure and done a five-year business plan. And a lot of that is supporting farmers on the ground, having farmers talking to other farmers. Farmers learn and will listen to other farmers, and it's finding the voice that other farmer. Every farmer won't listen to a conservationist, but they might listen to someone who's two steps up the ladder sort of thing. So they, they won't listen to the person at the top, but... So about that local support, networking, facilitating change, also huge amount of farming policy is going to change in all parts of the UK with the change of basic payment systems into whatever comes. But also there's lots of other opportunities and funding is going to come towards farming by government means and developers and businesses and about funneling that into the right things. But also we're hopefully what we will do is look at how we how we can get the public to recognise the produce from nature-friendly farms or better landscapes and look at how they can value that and connect their purchasing power in the supermarkets in a, you know, when they're eating out. Um, so there's a huge opportunity, 
we've got to secure more, a, a lot more funding because you know it's free network. I've gone to a lot of funders and asked them to put you know to support us. We're having a very positive conversations at the moment because they like what we're doing, and a lot they like the way the network is grassroots. This is farmers talking. This isn't policy people talking. This is farmers talking about what works for them and what could they do if the land you know the policy landscape or the supply chain landscape was better. So I think it's huge opportunities. It's going to mean a very busy few years ahead. But there's so many people within the network doing such amazing stuff. All our chairs and steering groups. This isn't just me. This is a whole network of farmers really chomping at the bit to get on with it. What have been um, some of your highlights since you started it? I mean, I mean, you've you, you travelled all around the country, see loads of nature, brilliant nature-friendly farmers, and you spend a lot of time in meetings with very high-profile people and policymakers, and in London. I mean, what have you found the most rewarding aspect of it all? I, I think that spending time with other farmers doing great things, that inspiration and the energy that can give you, but just engaging with the people that want to do similar things. There's a lot of naysayers out there and a lot of people, especially <laughs> the first couple of years, we had a lot of pushback yeah. and a lot of uncomfortableness from some. Um, but actually, let's just get on with it. Um, and sometimes I've sit in meetings, not this last year so much, it's all been on Zooms and bits and pieces, but you sat in a room or sat on a screen and there's some very high profile, influential people sitting on these screens and the conversations I'm going to have. And I was thinking, why am I here? What <laughs> I've sat in many meetings and all they want to do is ask you questions. And I'm thinking, you've got all these expert, you know, <laughs> scientists and really technical people. You're asking me as a farmer, and that's what I think is really powerful is having mm. farmers in meetings having a voice and sort of saying, This is where we are, this is what we can do. Um, and it's the people we've met, um, not just myself, but we've gone and been in meetings and all over the country. Um, I've just I get blown away. I sit there sometimes. And you think, what the heck are we doing? How did I got here? <laughs> um, but it's inspirational to see the amazing work and see the yeah. we've given the farmers a voice, and they they just swell and grow, and that voice becomes louder. And we're using our social media channels and other ways of just giving people a voice to say you are doing great stuff. It's not all negative towards you. We just need to help you get your voice and your what you're doing on your farm out to the wider audience okay let's hear the two minute elevator pitch why would you encourage other farmers to join the nature friendly farming network so the network is for farmers to have a voice across policy to other farmers and to public it's free to join so there's no obligation and it's about having support from like-minded people we're all going to go on a tremendous journey in the next five and ten years and learn experience and get knowledge from other farmers, but also connect that with our customers and the policymakers. There's a huge opportunity to have like-minded people having a growth together. If I did a slide and presentation, I'd have put a slide up of a starling. I'd say, this is a beautiful bird on its own. It doesn't really stand out. Bring thousands of starlings together and you have a murmuration of them dancing around. People stand up and look in awe. That's how I see our network working. Individuals, we can't do a lot, but we can do something when we come together. It's, you know, really is a pot opportunity being quite powerful to doing something better. That is such a good analogy. <laughs> um, looking back on your farming career so far um, and all the changes you've made and things you've achieved, 
what advice would you give your younger self when you were first starting out? Uh, don't listen to your father all the time. And <laughs> I stopped me traveling. I had opportunities by various organizations wanting me to travel, uh, to go and widen my knowledge, um, do studying trips. My father saw, you can't afford time off work. You can't, you know, we're busy. I wish I'd have done some of that. Um, I'm older now. I've got a family. You can't do it. Um, some of the stuff he says was really good, but actually change doesn't happen overnight. Plan for it three to five years in a, in a stepping stone. Failure's good. Um, I mean, we've got some crops last year I grew that were terrible, but actually I learned from that. Um, and it's about finding those opportunities and, and grabbing them and running with them. And, and don't say no to everything. <laughs> Uh, but don't say yes to everything because you get too busy to enjoy the bits you really want to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. That's enough of meetings and organisations and that kind of stuff. Let's get back to some farming. Uh, what positive changes have you noticed in terms of, of wildlife on the farm over the past few years with all the improvements you've made? Uh, so uh, bird numbers have, have rocketed. We see you know, so much more bird life on the farm, but also insects, pollinators, Many of the stuff I don't understand, and I've welcomed people here now to countermeasure it because I don't know what these little creepy, crawly things are, but I want to know which ones are the good guys and which ones are not so good, and how do I have a landscape full of good guys? The same as everything else. Um, And it's that connectivity we've made across the landscape. So the wildlife moves. I put in flower strips in the middle of the fields rather than just on the outsides because I recognise I want the predators and the pollinators in the middle of the fields as well as the outside. And also, we've gone down a journey of improving soil quality and stop cultivating ground, um, putting cover crops in. It's challenging on wet seasons, but actually the resilience of our soil is becoming so much more. Mm-hmm. The cost of production is dropping hugely. I mean, we no longer use insecticides. We've cut our fungicides by half, a fertilizer by 40%. And actually, it's making a better farming system. It's just a lot more management to think about. So I enjoy the nature around it my father passed away two years ago and actually i put some one of the first things i went to do is put some benches up around the farm so when i took the dog for a walk or i was out crop walking or just wanted some space i'd walk the farm and go and sit down somewhere on a bench and just look at what we've got take five minutes and just enjoy the landscape some of the stuff my father had done some of the stuff i'd done and i'll also look at the road at the end in the view and everyone queuing up on a roundabout in the midst, in the morning, going to work, we have a beautiful uh, landscape which I'm a pleasure to work in. It's challenging sometimes, but I actually really enjoy the landscape and the nature you have on your farm. Soil is something that you've mentioned a lot already, and I know that's something that you're very focused on, like many of us are now. Um, do you think that's part of the whole package of farming in a more nature-friendly way? Um, and are you encouraged that so many farmers are looking to the soil and how they can improve it at the moment? So, uh, start with soil is the heart of my production. Um, yeah, everything I want to produce comes out of the soil. For so many years, myself and most of us, I think, were only focused on the crop that, or the grass that grew above the soil. We didn't really think much what's below and what we do. And the more you open your eyes to the damage we are causing our soil and the less resi- resistant, resilient it is, particularly with the weather challenges that keep coming, the high rainfalls or droughts, 
by focusing on the soil, I'm actually focusing on improving my business. Uh, yeah, I think everyone's going to go down the journey. And I know a lot of the policy in the future is going to support or move us into that focus to think about it. And actually, if I put a resource on the farm as fertilizer, I don't want it leaving the farm. I don't want somebody else. I'll pay for it. I want to keep it. I don't want someone else picking it up and having to clean it up out the watercourses. So how do we keep it and managing it better? We can use a lot of data and science and technology and you know GPS stuff, but that just gives us a, the technical understanding of what we need to do. So I think we've really got to reconnect. So I always think of the journey that when my grandfather was here, he had a horse and plough. He smelt the soil as it turned over. He felt the rain on his back and everything else. Yeah. Then he got on a little tractor and he sat in a cab on a seat and then he put a cab around him. And now many farmers are actually sat in offices that don't actually go and they might dig a spade up sometimes. They've lost connection with our soils. You know, and that's where you've got to go and do is walk it, smell it, almost taste it. Go and find out what your soil's doing and what it's telling you and engage yourself with other people on the same journey and actually go beyond where your safety zone is so you actually get challenged with the way you think because it's only when you change your mindset that actually things really shift. Buying a fancy piece of machinery or changing one thing only makes small changes happen. If you really want to change the system, engage with people that really expand your knowledge to make you think differently. Well, that is a perfect time for New Year's resolutions. Um, <laughs> what are some of the things that, what, for, for you, Martin, we asked this question actually to quite a few guests, but what are some of the things that any of us can easily do for nature on our own farms? Um, perhaps three things that farmers listening can take away from this podcast. Uh, do you need to cut every hedge every year? Is there some hedges somewhere you can leave for a year or two? And do on a rotation. We know all hedges grow differently and there's passions around how hedges are managed, but leave some, particularly for the berries to grow. Your ditch maintenance, do you need to cut every bit of grass or every bit of verge or ditch out every single year? Because some of your best beneficiaries live in those grass verges. So how can you stop doing that? And the other one would probably be supplementary feeding, uh, particularly this time of year during the winter. If you've got some sweepings in a shed or a bit of leftover food, or if you've got some grain left, can you go and scatter that about? But also go and watch it. Walk down that hedgerow and see the birds burst out of that hedgerow because you're helping support them and get some pleasure from it. Yeah. Um, and, and we ask this every week because um, Ben and I are massive nerds, but if you had to pick uh, one species that you'd say is your absolute favourite that you see on the farm, I know this is a difficult, difficult question, but what would that favourite species be? I think for myself, the personal real pleasure is the barn owl. Um, to see it floating around in the evenings and in the mornings. We put in the earth, a few years ago, we put one or two, well, one, then two bird bo- barn owl boxes up and instantly had pairs in it. So I got a local person who's got a ringing license to come and help me ring them and, and he got to handle them. Now I see that bird float around and I'm thinking, is that the one I handled with a ring on? But then That's it so sort cool. of got going because other people wanted to come and engage. Yeah. So now people buy boxes or get given them, sign them, put them up, and we can go and ring them and they can be connected with those barn owls as well. So That's I get great. amazing pleasure out of it, but also giving that pleasure to other people. Yeah, fantastic. So cool. Is there anything on the farm that you don't have currently that you'd like to see in, in future? I went to an amazing farm the other day. He's got beavers. Well, a few weeks ago now. Oh, uh, okay. And actually, 
I can see it's, you know, I just think, you know, what an amazing engineering tool they are yeah. for managing our watercourses and that. And it's like, you know, there's things like that. Where can we fit them in? Uh, and, and, you know, public really likes to see them as well and, and sort of engage with it. So if, I'm always thinking of this, what can I, what do I want, what do I like, but also what, how I can engage that with other people. Because much of this wildlife you want, if you put beavers in or things, there's a cost to it in the managing that landscape or changing the management. And how can you get revenue stream or support for putting things in to make that work? Well, that's all we have time for. But thank you to Martin for coming on the show and telling us all about your business. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because you're the boss either. <laughs> yes, that's it for another episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And do please uh, give the podcast a retweet if you found us on Twitter. And if you're a regular podcast listener, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening. Also, it's really helpful if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple or Spotify for spreading the word. So we'd be very grateful if you could spare a few minutes for that. The podcast comes out on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. So look out for some great nature-friendly farmers over the coming weeks. For now, though, it's goodbye from Will and me. Have a great fortnight ahead and we'll see you next time.